If you're enjoying this Crush Step 1 podcast, you can now get the content along with the content of the Med Prep to Go Step 1 Questions podcast ad-free in one bundle. Just go to medpreptogo.com and find our new subscription podcast called the Med Prep to Go Step 1 Bundle. Hi, everyone. This is Ted O'Connell, one of the lead authors of Crush Step 1. Before we get started with this podcast episode, I want to tell you about a new project I'm working on called Med Prep to Go. It's a free online and audio USMLE question bank for step one and step two. And the goal of this project is to reduce the cost of medical education by developing a really high quality question bank that will be free and by putting it in audio format to give you some time back in your day. It's still relatively early in this project and we are actively adding new questions to the question banks and releasing additional episodes of our podcast. I'd like to encourage you to go check it out at medpreptogo.com. And if you want to get involved and learn how to write USMLE-style questions and contribute to this question bank, you can do that through the website at medpreptogo.com, or you can email me directly at ted.medpreptogo at gmail.com. And if you decide to get involved with learning how to write questions, we'll make sure you get some really good directions and mentorship through the process so that it's actually a really good learning experience for you and something that you can add to your CV. So I look forward to working with you. Please go check that out and we'll get started with this episode of the podcast. I'm Ted O'Connell, one of the authors of Crush Step One, the ultimate USMLE Step One review along with my co-authors, Ryan Pedigo and Thomas Blair. I am also the chief content officer for Inside the Boards. This is a Crush Step 1 podcast based on the second edition of our best-selling book. The goal is to provide you high-yield and high-quality audio content of the book to help you study on the go and reclaim some of the time in your day. This is Ted O'Connell, and this is a biostatistics chapter. Mean, median, and mode. We're going to start with a sample value set of 1, 1, 2, 4, 5, 7, 7, and 25, where n equals 8. The mean is the average of a sample. It is calculated by adding all values, then dividing by the number of values, which is n. In the sample set just given, 1 plus 1 plus 2 plus 4 plus 5 plus 7 plus 7 plus 25, all divided by 8 equals 6.5. The mean is sensitive to extreme values. Median is the middle value of a sample. It is equivalent to the 50th percentile, such that half the sample values are above and half are below. It is identified by arranging the values in ascending order then finding the middlemost number. If n is odd, the median is the n plus 1 divided by 2 largest observation. If n is even, the median is the average of the n divided by 2 and the n divided by 2 plus 1 largest observations. In this example, there is an even number of values, so the median is the average of the two middlemost numbers. That is, for 1, 1, 2, 4, 5, 7, 7, and 25, 
the median is the sum of 4 plus 5 divided by 2, which is 4.5. An advantage of the median is that it is not sensitive to extreme values. You may notice that in this sample, the mean is greater than the median. This indicates that the distribution has a positive skew, which we will discuss later. The mode is the most frequently occurring value in a sample. In this example, both 1 and 7 are modes because they both appear twice. Therefore, this data set can be said to be bimodal. Standard deviation, or SD, is a measure of the spread and variability of a data set, calculated as the square root of the variance. It represents the average deviation from the mean. The closer the values remain to the mean, the smaller the standard deviation. The concept, not the mathematics, may be tested on step one. Here's an example. Normal body temperature will have a small standard deviation because an individual's anterior and posterior hypothalamus maintains temperature homeostasis within a very limited range. Blood sugars, on the other hand, will have a larger standard deviation because glycemic loads change throughout the day. Now let's get into some definitions. Incidence is the number of new cases of a disease in a population over a specified period. It's longitudinal. Prevalence is the total number of people in a population affected by a condition at one point. It is cross-sectional. Duration relates incidence to prevalence. Here's an example. Upper respiratory infections have a high annual incidence, occurring often during winter months, but a comparatively low prevalence because most upper respiratory infections resolve quickly. Diabetes has a relatively low incidence but high prevalence because a patient who has diabetes generally has it for life. Normal distribution, also known as a Gaussian distribution or bell-shaped curve. A probability function in which values are symmetrically distributed around a central value, and the mean, median, and mode are equal. In a normal distribution, one standard deviation accounts for 68% of all values, two standard deviations account for 95% of all values, and three standard deviations account for 99.7% of all values. The 68 95-99 rule. The area under the curve is 1, or 100%. Here's an example. The intelligence quotient, or IQ test, is constructed to follow a normal distribution with a mean of 100 and standard deviation of 15. That means that 95% of the population, two standard deviations, will have an IQ between 70 and 130. Of clinical import, intellectual disability is defined as an IQ of less than 70. Bimodal distribution, a distribution with two modes. Here's an example. The incidence of Crohn's disease displays a bimodal distribution with the first peak between 15 and 30 years of age and the second peak between 60 and 80 years of age. Negative skew. An asymmetric distribution in which a tail on the left indicates that the mean is less than the median, which is less than the mode. The tail is due to outliers on the left side of the curve. Here's an example. 
A graphic representation of age at death would show a negative skew, with most people clustered at the right end of the distribution and relatively few dying at a younger age. Positive skew. An asymmetric distribution in which a tail on the right side indicates that the mean is greater than the median, which is greater than the mode. The tail is due to outliers on the right side of the curve. Here's an example. A graphic representation of age at initiation of smoking would display a positive skew. Most people would be clustered around their late teens, but a small number of middle-aged and older adults who initiated smoking later in life create a positive tail. Statistics for diagnostic tests. True positive, or TP. Disease is present and diagnostic test is positive, a correct result. True negative, or TN. Disease is absent and diagnostic test is negative, a correct result. False positive, or FP. The disease is absent and the diagnostic test is positive, an incorrect result. A false negative, or FN. The disease is present and the diagnostic test is negative, an incorrect result. 2 by 2 table. Consider drawing a 2 by 2 table whenever faced with a biostatistics question. To consistently put the table in the right order, try using the mnemonic truth over test results. That is, the truth is more important than the test. Intuitively, yes precedes no on both axes, and I'll refer you to table 1.1 in the textbook in order to see what this 2 by 2 table looks like. Prevalence. This is defined as the total number of people with disease divided by the total number of people studied, or from the 2 by 2 table, TP plus FN over the sum of TP plus TN plus FP plus FN. Note that prevalence varies by population. For example, Chagas disease has a higher prevalence in South America than it does in the United States. Sensitivity. Given the disease is present, the probability that the test will be positive. In other words, ask yourself, of all the people who actually have this disease, how many will be detected as positive by this test? It is defined as true positives over the sum of true positives plus false negatives, or true positives over the total number of people with the disease. Sensitive tests are useful for screening because there are few false negatives. Nearly everyone who has the disease is detected as positive. Therefore, if you test negative with this test, it essentially rules out the disease. Consider the mnemonic SN-N-OUT for a test that is sensitive for SN, a negative, which is the N in the mnemonic, result rules out the disease. Keep in mind that the equation for sensitivity says nothing about false positives. You may have detected everyone with the disease as positive, high sensitivity, but you may also have told many who do not have the disease that they tested positives, false positives. We'll review that one in example two. Here's example one. An HIV test with 98% sensitivity means that 
when a disease is present, it will be detected 98% of the time. Example 2. Consider a test that was positive 100% of the time, regardless of the presence or absence of disease. It would technically have 100% sensitivity because it would be positive in all the patients with the disease, but it would be clinically useless because it would be positive in all the patients without the disease too. Therefore, sensitivity is not the whole picture when it comes to test characteristics. Specificity is also important. Specificity. Given the disease is absent, the probability that the test will be negative. In other words, ask yourself the question, of all the people who do not have this disease, how many will be correctly identified as negative by this test? It is defined as true negative over true negatives plus false positives, or stated another way, true negatives over the total number of people without disease. Tests with high specificity are useful to confirm a diagnosis because there are few false positives. Because a highly specific test can identify correctly most patients who do not have the disease, if you see a positive result, it likely rules in the disease. Consider the mnemonic SP-P-IN for a test that is specific for the SP, a positive for P result rules in the disease. For example, an HIV test with 98% specificity means that when a disease is absent, the test will be negative 98% of the time. In general, there is a trade-off between sensitivity and specificity. For example, changing the cutoff value for an elevated serum lipase level will change the test's ability to detect a sick population with acute pancreatitis. Raising the cutoff value will increase the specificity with fewer false positives, but will also decrease the sensitivity, more false negatives. As another example, if the random blood sugar cutoff for the diagnosis of diabetes were moved from 200 mg per deciliter to 400 mg per deciliter, then the test would be very specific because anyone with a blood sugar greater than 400 mg per deciliter very likely has diabetes. There are very few false positives. However, it would be very insensitive because people with diabetes with random blood sugar readings of 300 mg per deciliter would have false negatives. Positive predictive value, or PPV. Given the test is positive, the probability that the disease is present. Positive predictive value equals true positives over true positives plus false positives, or stated another way, true positives over the total number of positive tests. For example, if a CT scan has a 98% positive predictive value for appendicitis, then a patient with a positive CT scan will truly have appendicitis 98% of the time. Negative predictive value, or NPV. Given the test is negative, the probability that the disease is absent. Negative predictive value equals true negatives over true negatives plus false negatives. Or stated another way, true negatives over the total number of negative tests. For example, if an HIV test has 98% negative predictive value, 
then given a negative test, the patient will truly be HIV negative 98% of the time. Once the result of a diagnostic test is known, positive predictive value and negative predictive value are extremely useful to clinicians. For example, if a diagnostic test for a pulmonary embolism is positive, positive predictive value answers the clinician's question. Given this positive result, what is the actual probability my patient has a pulmonary embolism? Unfortunately for the clinician, positive predictive value and negative predictive value vary depending on the prevalence of the disease in a population. They must be used with caution if your patient population is not identical to the one studied. Sensitivity and specificity, on the other hand, will not be affected because the ratio of true positives to total number of people with the disease will not change for a given test, but the ratio of true positives to the total number of positive tests will vary because an area with higher prevalence will have a higher number of positive tests. Calculations of risk measures, the 2x2 two two table. You can also draw a 2x2 two two table whenever faced with calculating risks or odds. To remember how to set up the table, think outcome over exposure. That is, the outcome is more important than the exposure. Intuitively, yes precedes no on both axes. Note that the exposure can be, quote, good, such as a beneficial treatment, or, quote, bad, such as a carcinogen or harmful medication. A 2 by 2 table for exposure can be set up similar to a 2 by 2 table for diagnostic tests, where the exposure can refer to a known characteristic, an observed exposure, or an assigned treatment. And for this particular example, I'll have to draw your attention to table 1.2 because it's simply difficult to explain in audio format. The incidence, or prevalence in the setting of cross-sectional studies, is calculated for each group from the 2x2 two two table. The probability, P, that the event will occur in the exposed risk group is given by risk in exposed equals A over the sum of A plus B. And in the unexposed, control group, it is given by risk in unexposed, or C over the sum of C plus D. For example, 100 patients are treated with a statin medication, and 5 suffer a myocardial infarction. What is the incidence of myocardial infarction in the group treated with or exposed to a statin medication? The solution is A over the sum of A plus B, which is 5 over 100, or 0.05, which is 5%. Risk difference, or RD, is the difference between the two groups. Risk difference equals the risk in exposed minus risk in unexposed, or vice versa. There are several ways to express the risk difference. Absolute risk reduction, or ARR, is the reduction in incidence associated with a treatment. The absolute risk reduction equals risk in control group minus risk in treatment group. For example, in one study, 5% of patients on a statin medication suffered a myocardial infarction, whereas 9% of those on placebo suffered a myocardial infarction. 
What is the absolute risk reduction of statins? Here's the solution. The absolute risk reduction is 9% minus 5%, which equals 4%. The use of statins in this population is associated with a 4% decrease in the number of myocardial infarctions. Attributable risk. The increase in disease incidence associated with an exposure. Attributable risk equals the risk in the exposed minus risk in unexposed. For example, in one study, 9% of patients exposed to asbestos developed bronchogenic carcinoma, and 2% of those without exposure developed bronchogenic carcinoma. What is the attributable risk of asbestos? Here's the solution. The attributable risk equals 9% minus 2%, which equals 7%. That is, asbestos exposure increased the incidence of bronchogenic carcinomas by 7%. Number needed to treat, or NNT, is the number of patients required to receive an intervention before an adverse outcome is prevented. For example, death, or myocardial infarction. The number needed to treat equals 1 over the absolute risk reduction. The opposite concept is number needed to harm, or NNH, which is used for interventions or exposures that may be detrimental, such as radiation exposure. The number needed to harm equals 1 over the attributable risk. For example, in one study, the absolute risk reduction of statin therapy is calculated at 4%. What is the number needed to treat? Solution. The number needed to treat equals 1 divided by 0.04, which is equal to 25. 25 patients would need to be treated with statins to prevent one myocardial infarction. Relative risk, or RR, or risk ratio is the ratio of incidence in the two groups. Relative risk equals the risk in exposed divided by risk in unexposed. For a negative outcome, a ratio greater than one indicates a harmful treatment or exposure, and a ratio less than one indicates a beneficial treatment or exposure, whereas a ratio of one is a null effect. For example, in one study, 50% of diabetic patients developed heart disease, compared with 10% of a control population. What is the relative risk of diabetic patients developing heart disease? Solution. The relative risk equals 0.5 divided by 0.1, which is equal to 5. Diabetic patients are five times more likely to develop heart disease than non-diabetic patients. Relative risk reduction or RRR, is the percentage of diseases prevented by a treatment. Relative risk reduction equals the risk in unexposed minus risk in exposed divided by the risk in unexposed, which is equal to the absolute risk reduction divided by baseline risk. For harmful exposure, the equivalent concept is excess relative risk is equal to risk in exposed minus risk in unexposed, all of this divided by risk in unexposed. For example, 5% of patients on a statin suffered a myocardial infarction, whereas 9% of those on placebo suffered a myocardial infarction. 
What is the relative risk reduction of being on a statin? Here's the solution. The relative risk reduction equals the sum of 0.09 minus 0.05 divided by 0.09, which is equal to 0.44 or 44%. That is to say, in the statin group, the risk of myocardial infarctions was reduced by 44% relative to those in the control group. Odds is the ratio of the probability of the outcome to the probability of not having the outcome. Odds equals P over the sum of 1 minus P. Odds ratio is a comparison of event rates between exposed and unexposed groups, calculated using odds instead of probabilities. It is the odds of an event in the exposed group divided by the odds of the event in an unexposed group. In a 2 by 2 table, it is calculated by odds ratio equals A divided by B over C divided by D, which is equal to AD divided by BC. Thus, cross-multiplication of the values in the 2 by 2 table. Odds ratios are somewhat unintuitive. However, one can simplify understanding by considering that odds ratio greater than 1 implies increased likelihood of an event in the exposed group, odds ratio less than 1 implies decreased likelihood of an event in the exposed group, and odds ratio equal to 1 implies no difference between the exposed group and the control group. Odds ratios are used instead of risk ratios in case control studies because the risk ratio cannot be calculated from the study data as a result of purposeful oversampling of cases in the study design. The odds ratio will approximate the relative risk if the outcome is rare. For example, investigators conduct a case control study to evaluate the risk for lymphoma as a result of radiation exposure from medical imaging. 100 people are selected with lymphoma, and 100 people without lymphoma are selected as controls. Five patients with lymphoma had prior radiation exposure, whereas only two patients without lymphoma had prior radiation exposure. Calculate the odds ratio. So for this solution, I'm going to have to draw your attention to table 1.3 because this is difficult to do in audio format, but I'm going to try. So A is where the exposure is yes and the outcome is yes. That equals 5. B is where the exposure is yes and the outcome is no, and that is equal to 2. C is where the exposure is no and the outcome is yes, that equals 95. And D is where the exposure is no and the outcome is no, and that equals 98. So remember, odds ratio is A divided by B over C divided by D, which equals AD divided by CB. And in this example, that comes out to 2.6. The odds of having lymphoma in those with radiation exposure is 2.6 times those of patients who never had significant radiation exposure. Statistical tests and significance. Reliability is a measure of the consistency of a test. That is, the likelihood that, on repetition, it will deliver the same results in the same situation. Reliability decreases 
as random error increases in a test. Validity is the ability of a test to measure what it is intended to measure. Reliability does not necessarily imply validity. For example, a test may reliably measure serum concentrations of vitamin D. However, this does not inherently mean that it is a valid predictor of a disease such as osteoporosis. Inter-rater reliability reflects to what degree test results will vary depending on who is administering the test. For example, body temperature has good inter-rater reliability when a thermometer is used, but poor inter-rater reliability when simple touch is used. Accuracy is analogous to validity and a measure of a test's ability to obtain true results. Precision is analogous to reliability and a measure of a test's ability to replicate results. Categorical data are data with a fixed number of nominal categories or data that have been grouped as such. For example, race, gender, or living and dead. Continuous data are data that can take any value within a range, for example, height or weight. Statistical tests for data analysis. Two-sample t-test compares the means, continuous data, of two groups and determines whether there is a difference between the means based on a predetermined level of significance. For example, is there a significant difference in the average systolic blood pressure, which is continuous data, between men and women, which is categorical data? As the name implies, only two groups can be compared in a two-sample t-test. The ANOVA, or Analysis of Variance, serves a similar function to a t-test, but can compare more than two groups. For example, is there a significant difference in the average systolic blood pressure, continuous data, of Asian Americans, European Americans, and African Americans, which is categorical data? The chi-square test compares proportions between groups of categorical data. There is no limit to the number of variables being compared. For example, is use of antibiotic X, Y, or Z, which is categorical data, associated with the difference in survival from sepsis, which is categorical data? The correlation coefficient, R, is the degree to which two continuous variables change together in a linear fashion. The correlation coefficient ranges from minus 1 to 1. A coefficient of 1 implies a perfect correlation, 0 implies no correlation, and minus 1 implies a perfect inverse correlation. For example, there is a positive correlation between height and forced expiratory volume, FEV, which increases as height increases. The square of the correlation coefficient is the coefficient of determination, R squared, which takes on a value between 0 and 1, and is a measure of how much the change in the dependent, Y variable, is determined by the change in the independent, X variable. Causality. Although tempting, it is important to never assume that an association implies causation. That is, A causes B. This simplification is often not the case because of the following. Inverse causation. 
B could actually be causing A. One might conclude that immunosuppression predisposes people to lentivirus infection. However, the lentivirus, HIV, is actually the cause of the immunosuppression, which can result in AIDS. Confounding. A third variable, C, could be affecting both measured variables A and B. For example, gingivitis may not cause diabetes, but lack of access to healthcare may predispose someone to both conditions. And then there are other sources of bias, which we'll discuss later. Hypothesis testing. The null hypothesis is the hypothesis of no association between two variables. For example, a given treatment has no effect, or two groups have identical risks despite different exposures. When constructing an experimental design, one attempts to statistically accept or reject the null hypothesis. The null hypothesis is paired with the alternative hypothesis, which takes the opposite assertion. For example, in a study comparing metronidazole to placebo for the treatment of giardiasis, the null hypothesis asserts that there would be no increased rate of resolution, whereas the alternative would assert that metronidazole hastens recovery, which it actually does. An alpha, or type 1 error, is rejecting the null hypothesis when it is true, creating a false alarm or a false positive. There's a mnemonic for this. Think A for alarm and type 1 because A is the first letter of the alphabet. For example, a study finds the use of vitamin D improves recovery from an upper respiratory infection when, in fact, it does not. Alpha is sometimes called the level of significance because it is the predetermined level below which the differences are considered unlikely to be due to chance alone and the null hypothesis is rejected. Usually, the alpha is set at 0.05. Beta, or type 2 error, is failing to reject the null hypothesis when it is false, creating a misdetection or false negative. For example, a study finds that there is no significant decrease in mortality for patients who regularly exercise when, in fact, there is. Power is the ability of a test to reject the null hypothesis when it is false. Otherwise stated, the probability of avoiding type 2 error. Power equals 1 minus beta. Power is increased with increased difference between groups, that is, effect size, and with increased sample size. P-value is the probability of obtaining a test statistic such as a t-test or chi-square test statistic, as extreme or more extreme by chance alone if the null hypothesis is true and there is no bias. A p-value of less than 0.05 is usually said to be statistically significant. Confidence interval is a range of values around the point estimate such that, with repetition, the true value will be contained with a specified probability of 1 minus alpha. Most often, the 95% confidence interval is reported, corresponding to an alpha level of 0.05. Increasing the sample size will narrow the confidence interval. A test in which the 95% confidence interval contains the true value is considered accurate. A test with a narrow confidence interval is considered precise. If the 95% confidence interval does not contain the null result, 
then there is a statistically significant difference in the groups. The null result depends on the test. Rather than memorizing these results, think about which results would imply a difference and which would not. For ratios, such as relative risk or odds ratio, the null value will be 1, whereas the differences, the absolute risk reduction, the null value will be 0. Clinical study design. An experimental study. The investigator controls the exposure assignment. An example is randomized control trials. Observational study. The investigator observes the subjects without intervention. Cross-sectional, case control, and cohort studies are observational studies. Cross-sectional study. Subjects are enrolled without regard to exposure and disease status, which are then evaluated simultaneously, most often in the form of a survey. A cross-sectional study designed to determine the number of people with disease at a given time is a prevalence study. For example, how many people who have hyperlipidemia also currently have coronary artery disease? Case control study. Subjects are enrolled based on disease status, one group with disease, the cases, and one group without, the controls, and then exposure is assessed in the two groups. Case control studies are retrospective studies where disease status is known before exposure assessment. Example, select subjects with and without mesothelioma and then ascertain the proportion of each group previously exposed to asbestos. Cohort study. Subjects are enrolled based on exposure status, one cohort with the exposure and one without, controls, and are followed over time for the disease of interest. Subjects must be free of the disease at enrollment. The study may be prospective, the disease status is not known at the time of enrollment, or retrospective, chart review. The incidence in each group can be calculated. Relative risks are calculated for each measure estimation. Example, does having elevated cholesterol increase your chances of having a myocardial infarction? In prospective design, patients with and without high cholesterol are enrolled and followed over time to see if they develop heart disease. In retrospective design, patients with and without high cholesterol are identified from 10-year-old hospital records. Their charts are then reviewed through the present date to determine whether they developed heart disease. Randomized Controlled Trial, or RCT. Subjects without the outcome of interest are enrolled and then randomly assigned by the investigator to either the exposed or unexposed group. The groups are followed prospectively for the outcome of interest. The advantage of randomization is that it makes the group similar in characteristics other than the exposure of interest. Additionally, participants and or researchers may be blinded to or kept unaware of, the treatment arm. If both are blinded, this is referred to as a double-blinded trial. Randomization makes systemic error, or bias, random. It can fail to sufficiently control bias if the sample size is small, or if there is differential loss to follow-up. Selection bias. Clinical drug trials are the main example of RCTs. Randomized studies cannot ethically be used to assess interventions thought to be harmful. For example, you cannot randomly assign someone to start smoking. Example, are patients randomly assigned to receive statins less likely to have an MI 
than those receiving a placebo. Crossover study, a type of prospective study, usually an RCT but possibly a cohort study, in which each patient begins in either the control or treatment group and then crosses over to the other group. In this way, every patient serves as his or her own control. Example, patients are randomly assigned either placebo or a tricyclic antidepressant to treat their fibromyalgia. After a period receiving one treatment, the group switch to see if the placebo group improves on the medication. Meta-analysis, a study that pools the results of several similar studies to increase statistical power by increasing the overall study size. If individual studies are of high quality, a meta-analysis can produce the most convincing level of evidence. However, a meta-analysis cannot compensate for poor research. Garbage in equals garbage out. Clinical trials. Phase 1 is the first stage of testing in human subjects. A small group of healthy volunteers is given a medication to determine safety, pharmacodynamics, and pharmacokinetics of the medication. Phase 2. In this stage, a slightly larger group of patients with the target condition is given the drug to determine efficacy, optimal dosing, and side effects. Many drugs fail in phase 2 because they are determined not to work as planned. Phase 3. Large, randomized controlled trials to determine efficacy of a drug compared with placebo or a gold standard. Phase 3 trials must prove both safety and efficacy of a drug for it to be approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or FDA. Bias. Bias can turn a good experiment bad and comes in many flavors that you will have to recognize on step one. The best way to avoid bias is a well-designed, randomized, double-blind controlled trial. However, these trials may be unethical, impractical, or even impossible to perform in some cases. Confounding. Another variable related to both exposure and outcome is unevenly distributed between groups and distorts the association of interest. Example, a study finds that drinking coffee is associated with lung cancer because the study fails to recognize that coffee drinkers are also more likely to be smokers. Solution, matching is one solution, which distributes confounders evenly between groups. Selection bias. Groups are not similar at baseline because of non-random assignment. Sampling bias or ascertainment bias. A sample is selected that does not accurately represent the population it is intended to. These studies may have internal validity that is accurate within the study, but lack external validity. Results are not generalizable to the population as a whole. Example, a study of economically diverse Population inadvertently overselects members of the lowest socioeconomic class by offering a small financial compensation for the study. Example A study to examine heart disease does not have any patients older than 65 years. The study may have internal validity, but lacks external validity and cannot be extrapolated to the general population, in which most patients with heart disease would be older than 65 years. The solution to this is random sampling. Susceptibility bias. Patients who are sicker are selected for more invasive treatment. Example, sicker patients get selected for surgical management over medical management of heart disease. Studies then show medical management to be associated with better outcomes 
simply because patients were healthier at baseline. The solution is randomization. Attrition bias. If loss to follow-up is unequal between the intervention and control groups, it can make an intervention seem more effective than it is. Example, a new acne medication may work for some patients, but it causes unwanted side effects. Patients taking the medication who do not experience improvement in their acne drop out of the trial at a higher rate than those without improvement taking placebo. In this case, the medication appears more effective at resolving acne than it is because more unimproved patients dropped out of the treatment group. The solution is to gather as much data as possible about dropouts. Measurement bias, or the Hawthorne effect. People change their behaviors when in a study. Example, participants in a medication trial to treat hypertension are more likely to adopt a healthy lifestyle if they know they are being studied. The decrease in blood pressure that occurs because of these lifestyle changes is attributed to the medication. Solution, include a placebo group. Recall bias. Patients' recall of an exposure may be affected by their knowledge of their current disorder. Example, a non-smoker with lung cancer reports significant exposure to secondhand smoke as a child. On the other hand, a healthy non-smoker with the same degree of exposure forgot all about his uncle who smoked indoors. Solution. Search for confirmatory or objective sources of information or conduct a prospective study. Lead time bias. Detecting a disease earlier may be misinterpreted as improving survival. Example. A 75-year-old patient with prostate cancer survives only five years after he presents with back pain. If a screening prostate-specific antigen or PSA test had been done in the same patient at 60 years of age, it would have provided the diagnosis and the patient would have lived for 20 years after disease detection. However, he would not have an increased lifespan. It would be a mistake, therefore, to conclude the screening test improved survival. Solution. Scrutinize any screening study for lead time bias and ask, is this actually improving survival or only detection? Adjust survival rates according to the severity of disease. For example, survival from stage T1, N0, M0 prostate cancer, rather than survival from date of detection. Late look bias. Information is gathered too late to make useful conclusions because subjects with severe disease may be incapable of responding or are deceased. Example, a survey of patients with pancreatic cancer reveals only minimal symptoms because those with severe disease are too sick to respond or may be deceased. Solution. Stratify by severity. Procedure bias. Subjects are treated differently depending on their arm of the study. Example. Patients assigned to a surgical intervention arm of a study are followed more closely than those assigned to no intervention. Solution. Perform a double-blind study. Experimenter expectancy or the Pygmalion effect. The hopes of the experimenter influence the outcome of the study. Example, a physician hoping to treat fibromyalgia conveys to a patient in the treatment arm his expectation that the medication will work. Solution, perform a double-blind study. Medical ethics, basic principles. Autonomy is a principle that all patients have the right to make their own informed medical decisions for their own reasons. Competent patients have a nearly limitless ability to exercise autonomy 
even if it means their own death or if it conflicts with the physician's personal ethical principles. Non-malfeasance, or do no harm. Physicians should weigh the relative risks and benefits of an intervention, acknowledging that most treatments have inherent risk and that it may be better to do nothing at all. Beneficence. Physicians have a duty to do what is best for their patients. Justice. All people should be treated similarly regardless of age, race, or ability to pay. Medical resources should be allocated fairly. Informed consent. Requires a discussion with the patient that includes the procedural information from the brain mnemonic. B for benefits. R for risks. A for alternatives. I for indications for the procedure and N for nature of the procedure. Consent must be free from coercion. It may be written or oral and can be revoked at any time. Exceptions to informed consent. Follow the mnemonic WIPE. W is for waiver. Patient legally expresses a desire not to know. I for incompetence. A legal determination made by a judge that a person is unable to manage his or her affairs because of mental limitations such as intellectual disability. Additionally, a physician can determine lack of decision-making capacity, for example, in a patient experiencing acute delirium. Note that, unlike competence, which is legally determined by a judge, decision-making capacity may change depending on the complexity of the decision. For example, a delirious and septic patient may be able to comprehend the decision to take an antiemetic and refuse the medication, but may not be able to understand the complexities of consenting to or refusing a central venous catheter. Next is therapeutic privilege, which is the P in white. Disclosure is withheld because it could seriously harm the patient, for example, causing the patient to commit suicide, not just to refuse treatment. And E is for emergency or implied consent. A patient with an emergent condition is unable to provide consent, for example, an unconscious victim of a motor vehicle crash. Futility. A patient cannot demand unnecessary treatment from a physician. A physician may refuse to provide further intervention on the grounds of futility if the treatment has already failed, the treatment will not achieve the patient's goals, or there is no physiologic reason the treatment will work. Advanced Directives. If a patient is incapable of making medical decisions or determining goals of care, the focus should drift to what the patient would want if he or she could communicate. These may simply be inferences from statements the patient made earlier or may be formalized as a living will, a document that explains what care a patient wants or does not want in certain situations. Durable power of attorney is more flexible and allows a surrogate selected by the patient to make decisions that reflect the patient's wishes. Minors and medicine. Children younger than 18 years cannot refuse treatment or give informed consent, except in select circumstances. Parental consent for minors. The need for parental consent should nearly always be respected. Consent only needs to be obtained from one parent of a minor. In some situations, parental consent needs to be circumvented. In life or limb-threatening emergencies, treatment should not be delayed despite parental objection. In urgent situations, legal options can be pursued to make a child a ward of the court. For example, parents cannot refuse life-saving therapy for a minor with cancer. 
exceptions to the need for parental consent, emaciated minors, married, serving in the military, financially independent, or parents to children, reproductive health for sexually transmitted infections, birth control, or prenatal care, and substance abuse treatment. Confidentiality. Physicians cannot disseminate information about their patients without consent. This principle applies to speaking with families, friends, the court, or other doctors who are just curious. However, any communications for the purpose of patient care are acceptable, such as with consultants. Exceptions to confidentiality are rare but are focused on preventing harm. They include the following. A Tarasoff decision. Physician-patient confidentiality must legally be breached if the patient has threatened to harm another person. The healthcare provider should try to detain the patient, contact the police, and warn the potential victim. Child abuse or elder abuse. Dangerous driving. Patients must be reported to the Department of Motor Vehicles if they experience a seizure or otherwise present a danger. Reportable diseases. Many diseases must be reported to local authorities and to the patient's partner in the case of sexually transmitted infections. Examples include the following. Most STIs, or sexually transmitted infections, including HIV, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis. Bioterrorism agents, such as anthrax and smallpox. Hepatitis A, B, and C. Animal or arthropod-borne diseases, such as rabies, Lyme disease, and tularemia, and diseases preventable with vaccination, such as measles, mumps, rubella, and varicella. Waiver. The patient may waive confidentiality, so discussions can be held with family members or disclosures made to the insurance company. Detainment. Patients deemed to be a danger to self, such as suicidal, or a danger to others, homicidal, or to have a grave disability, such as unable to care for the self, can be detained against their will for a defined period depending on state laws. These patients retain all other rights, however, and may still refuse treatment if they have capacity to do so. Only a judge may take away other rights or detain a patient for longer. Principles for Ethics on the USMLE Even if it does not make sense to you, patient has the right to forgo treatment unless the patient is deemed legally incompetent or lacks the capacity to make the decision. Assume that a patient has capacity to make medical decisions unless there is strong evidence otherwise. Examples include after a suicide attempt or if the patient is acutely psychotic or delirious. The burden of evidence falls on you to prove that the patient lacks capacity, not the other way around. If a patient is refusing a treatment plan you think is best, Always ask why and explore the patient's reasoning. If a patient is angry, ask why and try to express empathy in regard to the patient's concerns. If the patient is angry with another physician, avoid condemning the other physician. Avoid escalating the problem if possible. Communication tactics are favored over legal tactics. If a patient makes sexual advances, establish boundaries and use a chaperone if needed. Focus on closed-ended questioning. Never establish a romantic relationship with a patient. State laws vary in regard to physician-assisted death. In most states, physicians cannot legally, actively assist a patient in dying. It is legal, however, to allow a patient to die by withholding life-sustaining care according to the patient's wishes. 
medications can be given to reduce pain that coincidentally shorten life. The amount of information a child is given about his or her disease is at the parent's discretion. Maternal autonomy legally supersedes fetal health in the first trimester. After that point, state laws vary and therefore are highly unlikely to be tested on the USMLE. A pregnant female patient can accept and refuse care regardless of risk to the fetus, and she can seek an abortion for medical or non-medical reasons. Substituted judgment means judging what the patient would want, not what the decision maker wants. In all instances, the patient's interests and wishes should be the basis of decision making. The feelings of family members should be respected, but should not affect care at the expense of patient autonomy. A physician should not be allowed to practice medicine in a way that puts patients at risk. Whether sick with a contagious disease such as tuberculosis, psychologically unsound, or practicing subpar medicine, the issue should be addressed either directly or with a supervisor. If a physician makes a medical error, he should admit to it, apologize, and do everything possible to limit the complications from that error. The physician should not blame others or cover it up. A patient with medical capacity is allowed to refuse care or leave the hospital against medical advice. The physician should discuss the risks of foregoing treatment and should offer available alternatives when possible. For example, a patient with pneumonia may benefit from intravenous antibiotics but refuses hospital admission. He could still be given a prescription for oral antibiotics and an appointment for follow-up. Avoid unnecessary treatments even if a patient requests them, but try to understand why the patient is requesting them. Do not accept referral fees or kickbacks from medical manufacturers or pharmaceutical companies. Preventative medicine and healthcare. Primary prevention is preventing a disease process from ever occurring, such as vaccinations or sunscreen use. Secondary prevention is recognizing disease early and preventing disease progression, for example, mammography and colonoscopy for cancer screening. Tertiary prevention is preventing disease sequelae and reducing disability from illness, for example, diuretics for the treatment of congestive heart failure, hemoglobin A1c for monitoring diabetic patients. Health Maintenance Organizations, or HMO, is a type of managed care organization with integration of payment and delivery of health care in which a group of providers contract with the insurance agency to provide complete care for a patient in exchange for a referral base. All care is coordinated by a primary care provider who refers the patient to specialists as necessary. Kaiser Permanente is an example of an HMO. Preferred Provider Organization, or PPO, is a type of insurance in which the insurer develops a network of physicians to provide care to their clients at a reduced rate. In exchange, physicians receive access to a population of potential patients. In contrast to an HMO, patients may seek care from any PPO provider, including specialists, without PCP referral. Medicare is a federal health insurance plan for those 65 years and older and people with certain disabilities. All qualifying citizens receive Part A, but must opt in for Parts B and D. Part A is inpatient care, Part B is outpatient care, and Part D is prescription drug coverage. 
Medicaid is joint state and federal program that provides health insurance to impoverished citizens and permanent residents. Qualifications and benefits depend on the state. Physician reimbursement. Fee-for-service. Each procedure is reimbursed to the physician. Pitfall is that there is a financial incentive that exists for physicians to overtreat patients. Capitation. A physician is paid a fixed amount for each patient, usually on a monthly basis, regardless of time spent or treatment rendered. Pitfall is that physicians may select for healthier patients or be less likely to order tests. Salary. Hospitals or HMOs pay a fixed salary to the physician, regardless of procedures performed, tests ordered, or number of patients cared for. Pitfall is that physicians may have less productivity. Malpractice. A physician is at risk for a civil suit if the situation fits the four Ds. If the physician has a duty to the patient, is derelict in the patient's care, and directly causes damage to the patient. So the four Ds are duty, derelict, directly, and damage. Good Samaritan law limits the liability of physicians who help patients in an emergency when the physician is not receiving compensation for the patient's care. That's the end of the biostatistics chapter. With that, we wrap up today's episode of the Crush Step 1 podcast. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, the publishing company behind Crush Step 1, as well as all of my other books, for allowing us to put out this book in podcast format. Thank you for joining us, and please check out our other chapters.